It is Thursday, January 18, and it would have been A.A. Milne's birthday today. Although if he was still alive, that would make him 142. But because it's his birthday, or at least I'm assuming that's the reason, it's also National Winnie the Pooh Day in the United States, which I do believe we should make a thing here. And while we're at it, just make it a public holiday. Why not? Kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Imogen, and this is what's worth talking about. David Seymour's in to chat ahead of this weekend's hui called by the Māori King, where thousands are set together to discuss worries about some of the coalition government's policies. Donald Trump's had a massive win early on in the election campaign, so will anyone be able to successfully challenge him for the Republican nomination? The SBCA has close to 4,000 animals that need adopting, and are you a psychopath? You might discover you are by the end of this episode. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. More than 3,000 people are expected to attend this weekend's hui called by the Kingitanga to discuss concerns about the coalition government's plans for Māori. Such a hui is extremely rare, with Kingi Tuhaitia issuing a royal proclamation, te paki o matariki. The call is the highest form of royal proclamation the Kingitanga can issue. The invitation to the hui isn't restricted to Māori, and it has been confirmed the Māori Development Minister Tama Pōtaka and the Chair of the Māori Affairs Select Committee Dan Bedouin will represent the government, but what about those whose policies in part have sparked the hui? We're joined by Axe leader David Seymour to have a chat. G'day David, how are you? Hi, good thanks Imogen, hope you've had a good summer. Thank you very much, I did indeed. Will you be attending this weekend's hui David? Uh, No, I have no plan to, Um, you know obviously people are free to, to get around and Uh, discuss whatever they like in New Zealand and I'm glad that there's more discussion about uh, the treaty and the future of New Zealand's constitution but I don't think they need me to be at every one of them. Would it not be a good opportunity to explain further what the treaty's principles bill is trying to achieve and answer those criticisms from Māori face to face? Um, Well let's just be a bit realistic here. Um, There's three quarters of a million people uh, who identify themselves as Māori I'm one of them. Uh, I talk to people all day, every day, in many formats up and down New Zealand. I think the assumption in your question that uh, if you don't go to this guy who says he's the king um, and talk to that particular meeting that you're not engaging with people is a bit unfair. That wasn't what I was saying there. It was more that the the Treaty Principles Bill is something that has in part sparked this hui. So would it not be beneficial for you yourself to go and explain what it's all about and what you're trying to achieve? Well, like I say, I mean, I've I've done that many times for, for many people. Um, and I think there is an assumption in, in what you're saying that somehow if I don't talk to these guys at this particular event, we're not engaging with people. We, we do that very frequently. Uh, you know, I plan to go to Waitangi and that is the, the preeminent uh, event for the New Zealand state and really the start of the discussion for the year. Does it worry you at all that Axe move to try to clearly define the principles of Te Tiriti or Waitangi has provoked such a response so early in the piece? Not really. Look, there, there will always be a small minority who claim to speak for all Māori. Um, there will always be a minority of people uh, within Māori Dim who don't really like the idea that you know we all basically have the same rights and duties just as the treaty says. 
Um, I suspect that that was true at the time of the treaty signing, that uh, some chiefs weren't so keen on the idea of all Māori having the same rights. Um, but nonetheless, uh, that is the way that people have lived in successful societies all around the world. And there's many counterexamples of unsuccessful societies uh, where a small number of people believe that they should have a different set of rights um, you know, from others. And, and there is such a group of people within Māoridom and they seem to be angry about a lot of things. Um, I'm not surprised by that. Why not? Uh, I guess because the, the whole modus operandi is that uh, they should have a role in society that's set out as uh, the people who are consulted, the people who are on the boards, the people who speak for all Māori when they don't. Um, and I guess the approach that ACT takes, that actually we all belong uh, to a country that was founded on a treaty that gives us all nga tikanga katoa ritetahi, the same rights and duties, um, I can see how that would be a problem for them. Do you regard this hui this weekend as a small minority? Uh, well, if you look at it, they're claiming that there may be 3,000 people there. Um, there's 750,000 people who identify as Māori uh, within New Zealand. Um, and there's also um, about nearly 4.5 million others who don't identify as Māori, and they actually also are human beings with the same rights and duties of New as New Zealand citizens um, who also have a say in this country. So I guess, you know, you can argue about what a minority is, but those are the numbers that you've got to make your mind up on. What are you expecting at Waitangi? Do you think there could be any protests or confrontations there? Well, look, Waitangi's always been a place where people go. It's sort of almost... Um, like a, a kind of marketplace for, for some people to air grievances. Um, and I certainly intend to, to show up uh, and address people who, who want to listen and want to have dialogue about what our policies mean, why we think they're important, uh, why a lot of people have trusted ACT with their party vote to, to put those policies on the national stage. And, of course, you know people will have a view on that. Um, that we'll hear um, and hopefully also be able to get across our point of view. That's what dialogue's about. Will you, like you did last year, do your speech in Te Reo Māori? Um, I'm certainly planning to, but, you know, if, if you were there, you'll see my linguistic skills haven't really improved much since I tried French in fourth form. Um, uh, we'll see. Act leader David Seymour, thank you very much for your kōrero. Thank you. We're still going to talk about cute fluffies that need a home really soon. But if there is something you'd like to hear about or if you've got any tips you'd like to share, do get in touch via the Stuff Instagram account or you can email us as well, newsable at stuff.co.nz. One of the biggest events of this year, of course, will be the 2024 US presidential election, which is set to be held on the 5th of November. Now, that may seem ages away. But the election ball is already rolling in the States and in the last 24 or so hours Donald Trump has had a major victory winning a vote in Iowa to be the Republican candidate. If you're like me and you love this stuff but also get a bit confused with how the US election system works every four years, fear not. Because on the line, we have David Super, who is a law and economics professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He's here to explain it all. David, hello and welcome. Thank you for having me. David, can you quickly explain what caucuses are? Yes, a caucus is a form of in-person voting that each of the political parties uses to select delegates to their nominating convention. Some states 
have voting the same way we do in a general election where you just go in and cast a ballot. But in Iowa and some other U.S. states, people actually meet together in gymnasiums and auditoriums and group themselves by which candidate they support. And so what then is the significance of Iowa? Iowa is the first state in the country every year to select its delegates to the nominating convention. So everything that happens up to this point is tentative. None of it means anything. All of it's reversible. But once you start picking delegates, that gives the candidates who win those delegates real power. And I was the first state to do that. What happens from here then until Election Day? Is it is it more of the same of these caucus votes? And when will we know who the official candidates for each party are? Well, there's no serious opposition to President Biden. So he will be the Democratic candidate unless he changes his mind or the party persuades him to change his mind. For the Republicans, this process will continue. The next state, which is next week, is New Hampshire, uh, an even smaller state, and they will be voting rather than caucusing. So they're the first vote in the country. Iowa is the first caucus in the country. And this will continue until all the other candidates have been eliminated or have dropped out. Do you think there's any chance of a major upset when it comes to the Republican candidate, or is it is it Donald Trump and he's set in stone? It's pretty close to Donald Trump. The only thing that could possibly change things is if he is criminally convicted, then certainly some people in his party would want to make a change. But by the time that happens, he'll have enough delegates to win the nomination. And you mentioned that there's no real candidate up against Biden for the Democrats. Is that why we're not hearing much about the Democrats at this point in the campaign? There's not as much fanfare? Yes, uh, that's basically it. There are a few long shot or vanity candidates that have put their names forward, but none of them has any significant following and the party is almost entirely united uh, behind President Biden. How significant is this election going to be, David? To me, the on the other side of the world, it seems huge. Oh, it is. It's very significant. Donald Trump is already talking about acting like a dictator if he wins. He's suggesting that he might serve more than one additional term, which is prohibited by our constitution. He and people working with him have talked about arresting their opponents. So we would be talking about changing the United States into Hungary at best and perhaps something much worse. David Super, a law and economics professor from Georgetown University in Washington, thank you so very much for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. If you're on the edge of your seat wondering if you might be a psychopath and didn't realise, rest assured, I'm about to give you all the facts. Well, maybe all the reckons in just a moment. But if you are enjoying what you're hearing, remember to chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform because it does help other people find us. The SPCA says it is at capacity with 3,900 animals in its care at both shelters and foster homes. The organisation says the influx is a combination of cost of living pressures and people being unable to look after their animals and a slowdown in adoptions. And of course, it is the time of the year where there are lots of furry babies going around as well. So here to chat more is the SPCA's General Manager of Animal Services, Corey Regneris-Kell. How are you? 
Hi, good afternoon. Doing great. Well, you've got nearly 4,000 animals in your care. Um, How does that number compare to usual? So we've got 28 centres that are in operation that those 3,900 animals are are spread across. A majority of those are still working through the system and getting ready to be adoptable. But we are managing as we best we can at the moment. The numbers themselves are pretty much kind of near where we tend to see over these summer months when we've got really high capacity issues. We also tend to get a lot of returned foster animals at this time of the year when our loving foster volunteer parents are heading off on holidays of their own where they can get some time away. So those animals do come back into the center, but we're also in peak kitten season as well. And the slowdown in adoptions, is that a symptom of the cost of living, do you think? With the calls that we're seeing that are coming through and the questions that we're getting and what we're trying to do is just really facilitate those long-term homes. We do know that, for example, in dogs, most of our animals are staying with us nearly three weeks longer than they would have at this time of the year on average. And with that, we've had less adoption inquiries coming through. We've been doing all right in cats and kittens at the moment. So they're lovely, they're cute, they're bouncy, but it's trying to get all those other ones through the centre. What sort of animals are up for adoption right now and where's the need? Pretty much anything and everything that we could possibly think of is available for for adoption through the SPCA. A lot of the times we just think about cats and dogs within SPCA centres, but we have pigs, we've got birds, we've got turtles, we have fish, rabbits, guinea pigs, horses, um, potentially even some sheep and cattle that might be strewn around the place as well. So really options all over the place. Where we're struggling at the moment is really in our dog capacity, um, and we're starting to reach that threshold from our cat capacity as well, just with the influx of kittens. Our normal kind of February, March time period, when we expect to see the most cats and kittens in center, we actually started to achieve back in December. Why is so that? We think potentially we've just had a you know a good weather run. I know a lot of people haven't said that, but it's been a you know a relatively good weather run when it comes to breeding. And we just go back to some of the responsible pet ownership. So we do have animals that have been potentially dumped and abandoned that has been contributing to the feral populations. We still have a lag effect from COVID as well, where veterinarians weren't able to do routine desexing under the COVID lockdown restrictions, and we started to create a bottleneck and a backlog. Right. And I do believe you may have a wee incentive for those who might be on the fence, who might be just starting to think about adopting a furry friend. Would you like to announce it, Corey? Sure thing. So starting from the end of January, we will actually be starting to run our half-price adoption campaign. So the purpose of this is not to try to undervalue what it is that you're getting when you adopt an animal from SPCA, because they have had all of the veterinary treatment treatments. They've been fleed, they've been wormed, they've been vaccinated. So they're up to date with all of that. They've been microchipped, they've been registered. And depending on which center you adopt from, that could include council registration as well for the dogs. But it's for those that are going, do I, don't I, should I take the leap? Let's do it. Let's give half price off those as a subsidized opportunity from SPCA to get into the mix. So how much is my half price pig going to cost me, Corey? Half price pig. Pigs, I'd have to double check on the pricing for you. So That's right. Um, you can email me later. <laughs> perfect. Sounds like a plan. Corey Rigner as Cal, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. 
So, breaking news. I'm a psychopath, according to a study published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. That study says if your index finger, so your pointer finger, is shorter than your ring finger, then you are more likely to have psychopathic tendencies. Go on, check them out. Right now, play along at home, get it out of the way, let it dictate the rest of your day like it did mine. The researchers took detailed scans of the hands of 80 participants and the results, they say, reveal a clear link with longer ring fingers and antisocial traits. And looking at my own hands, my index finger is, I would say, significantly shorter than my ring finger. There was no mention, though, of whether or not the difference in size indicated how much of a psychopath you are, which I was pleased to see was not in there. But also pleased to see in there was that the lead researcher said the old finger-length trick is not a surefire indication that you are or you're not a psychopath. Still something fun to get everyone around you to do anyway, isn't it? That is Newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. Am I a psychopath? Keep listening to find out, I guess. This pod took time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support.